Well, as Jane Canry says in this episode, Clay, every day takes figuring out all over again how to fucking live. Every day takes uh, podcasting over and over and over again to finish Deadwood, the series. (laughs) How are you? And welcome to the third season of Deadwood. I'm good, but Wes, don't I yearn for the days when a draw across the throat made fucking resolution. (laughs) (laughs) It was a simpler time. A long time ago, two years ago, in fact, uh, mm-hmm. I assume, well, is it? Yeah, probably is. It's it's in the uh, the production of the the show itself and in the timeline. It's probably been about two years total since they showed up. So it must be 1878 or late 1877 in the town of Deadwood. But here we are. Yeah, I, we, go ahead. I was just going to say, I will say my other favorite quote in this episode is Gabriel's, Gabriel's trumpet will produce you from the ass of a pig. <laughs> Well, we might, um, I mean, I guess we can get that out of the way. That's, uh, I think that's the funniest EB scene in the entire series. Yeah, um, it's pretty good. His, his, uh, his post beating scene where he's, and <laughs> says, I will profane your fucking remains, EB. And he goes, not my remains, Al. <laughs> <laughs> Very funny. Uh, we'll talk more about that. But this is it. We are up to tell your God to ready for blood. It's the first episode of the third season, the final season of Deadwood. So after we take a short break and play the music, we're going to come back and break it down. You're listening to a podcast that is a lie agreed upon. Join Wes and Clay as they discuss HBO's Deadwood and tell you something pretty. This is the first episode of the third season of Deadwood. It's called Tell Your God to Ready for Blood, directed by Mark Tinker. <laughs> Written by David Milch and Ted Mann. A Cornish miner, in this one, a Cornish miner is shot dead in the gem. Parp, 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 parp. Tolliver recovers slowly from his gut wound. Swearingen scrubs the bloodstain left by the Cornishman. Ellsworth discovers the pregnant Alma unconscious on the floor of their home. Bullock visits the gem to hear about the Cornish murder and Swearingen's elaborate ideas of Hurst's hand in the crime. Hurst and Bullock face... What's that? Sorry, finish. Sorry, I thought you were done. Oh, sure, sorry. Hurst and Bullock face off in Hurst's room. He asks Bullock to take a message to Alma. Bullock beats Farnham, assuming that he has told Hurst of the affair with Alma. Cochrane offers Alma drugs for her pain. She does not want to reawaken that demon. Joni holds a gun to her own head. Swearingen sits with Hurst to talk of the murder and the elections. The meeting is tense. The campaign speeches are postponed. Jane spends the night inside at the Chez Amis. You see me empty, sir. Do not pause and inquire. Simply assume and refill. (laughs) Would you rather we spoke in private? No, fuck no. I'd rather the gentleman stay. Captain Turner. I'd rather the captain stay. Brings home I consort with my betters. I'll not dissemble, sir. Today's events have gave me pause. Tell me what you mean. Well, the beating of Farnham most recently. Oh, there's Mr. Farnham. Worse for wear, not that I'd care if you weren't in your hire. Where does the sheriff get off taking off on one of your own? I don't consider Bullock came here to beat Farnham. He and I had appointed to meet. In my join this morning, another of your workers was gut shot, Mr. Hurst. Yes, I know. Ah, this wasn't some hooplehead bullshit. This had the feel of a put-up job. I fear a plot against you. 
I have learned to accept, Mr. Swearingen, that events sharing some effect on my interest does not make them part of a plot. You ain't the center of the universe, in other words. Exactly. Don't that lead you to despair? <laughs> no, sir. <laughs> You're stronger-minded than I. A bullock beating Farnham seems more likely some expression of a private feeling of his own. That leaves the bloodshed in my bar. Sir, how do you count for that? Nor are the Cornish well-loved as a race. Not you through the Cornish. Maybe the Cornish themselves were the object of the violence. Well, they do tend to aggregate and organize to further their financial interests. Unions. Have you strong feelings on that subject? I don't give a fuck about unions, Mr. Hurst. Nor do I have any objection to the killing of the Cornish as high graders, aggregating, organizing cocksuckers, but bloodletting on my premises that I ain't approved, I take as a fucking affront. It puts me off my feed. How do we know when you are off your feed? You'll start to see me tearing things down. Speeches tonight are canceled. Unless the insult's cured by tomorrow. They'll be further tearing down. Fuck the fucking elections and fuck the agreement with Yankton. Let the camp return to its former repute. Unstable and unsafe for commerce. I'm a great believer in those. Oh, stability, sir, and commerce? I can fucking imagine. Think of all they've helped you accomplish. Shall I perceive you, then, as dangerous to my interests? As capable of inconvenience and of some damage and death to those that would act against my interests, I cannot fucking argue with dangerous. Different from powerful, though, which speaks to potency longer term. I not have myself called powerful in your company or the captain's. Then I'll hope that your insult is cured to spare the camp any danger of however brief a duration. I was just going to say, uh, that first sentence that you read sounded like the opening line to like a Tom Waits song. <laughs> Cornishman got shot in the gym saloon. Have some, uh, have some, uh, not steel, have some, have some. Jonas Stubbs puts a gun to a head. <laughs> He's so fantastic at writing those narrative uh, songs. They just really, mm. you really feel like you're in a time and a place. Do you like Tom Waits? I do. It took, it took me a, a while to come around to him. Like yeah. the first time I listened to him, I was like, is this a Muppet you, singing yeah, the blues? Are you fucking serious? Like, what? <laughs> is, this a, is this a bit? <laughs> yeah. But uh, I, I did, I did come around. I do, I do like him quite a bit. Yeah. I think he's hard to he get can, into. It's a, he is. Yeah. I think um, he's kind of like coffee a bit, where it's like you. There's a lot of different uh, uh, dilutions that sure. you can uh sample to kind of get in to him what kind of but coffee then do you want for the day you have to yeah. make a decision yeah but then eventually you end up just drinking it black you know <laughs> um i like it's it's so strange too not to talk the whole episode about tom waits but like mm. if you go back and you and you listen to like his first album it's like it's like a billy joel album it's just a guy yeah. and a piano and he's got a very normal singing voice and then at some point he got possessed by the spirit of a homeless man from the 40s or something. Yeah, yeah. And uh, just turned into this weird, growly um, story song singer. And yes. I, it's, it, I, think it, I think it works sometimes, it doesn't others. And I think when he goes really, really off the deep end, it's, it's a really tough listen. 
Um, but there's like a sweet spot in there that I really like. Yeah, yeah. He goes, um, he's so all over the place that it's hard to just isolate a particular album even. I mean, yeah. if, if you, I mean, I guess Bone Machine would be a good place to start with him just because it seems the most straight ahead of everything. But like uh, the Ramones covered a song off that one. Oh, really? Going Out West is a great song. Mm. Um, I really liked uh, Blue Valentines. Yeah. Because that's, yeah. that's where he's still, he's doing the growly thing, but he's he's still singing sort of traditional songs, yeah. like kind of blues ballads and stuff. Yeah. I, I, I really like that stuff. Back to this one, which I've already figured out on the title. Tell your God to ready for blood. So I guess there's a, there's a lot of boring, not a lot, but I'll try to go through this quickly, and it's off the top of my head because I don't have the Bible in front of me because I didn't have time to make notes. What You don't have the good. The good book is just tucked under your leg. It is. is. <laughs> I should, I should, I'm always clutching the, Bi- the Deadwood Bible like Cy <laughs> does in this one until someone leaves the room or stops listening to the podcast, and then I just sigh and put it down. Um, so... Basically, the the behind the scenes stuff for this one is that the turnover in production staff uh, from season two to season three is pretty um, far reaching, really. So Mm. there was not a lot of turnover from season one to season two. It was a lot of the same people. It's a small group. Uh, But in season three, we lost Jodie Worth and Liz Sarnoff left. Liz Sarnoff Mm. went on to do Lost, interestingly. And Jodie Worth was sort of pushed out by Milch, interestingly, too. So it really, it sounds from the Bible like just sort of to kickstart his own career as a showrunner, which eventually mm. he did by sort of he landed uh, did pitching to CBS and things like that and got shows like, produced. Uh, do you ever see that documentary that was on Netflix for a while called like Six Feet from Stardom, which was all about backup singers and like oh uh, no, backup singers and like studio musicians and stuff. Yep. And That's- someone was talking about when when they were in. I think it was the guy from Fuel. Or filter one of those bands okay and he's like yeah i used to play in nine inch nails and trent reznor basically kind of treated us like shit and didn't pay us very well mm-hmm. and uh, his excuse was you shouldn't want to stay in this band yeah i'm yeah. doing this because i because you should want the experience and then you should go do your own thing which right. Makes sense in your head when you're thinking it, but to the person you're saying it to, it sounds pretty shitty. (laughs) (laughs) It's a a good excuse uh, that no one can really poke a hole into if it it works out for the other person. Great, great documentary. Highly recommend it. That's basically what Milch did with Worth, who had been sort of a protege for a long time. Um, And he's he's fine at this point, so things haven't changed. But he's not around in season three. Uh, He was... Apparently, there was an agreement between him and Steve Bocho, Boko, or Bocho, however you pronounce it, who was the other NYPD blue producer. Oh, Bochco? Bochco, sorry, yeah. yeah. There was, um, he, Milch wasn't allowed to poach NYPD blue writers to Deadwood. Mm. It was just sort of like an agreement that they had when Milch left that show. Uh, but he did pick up Mark Tinker, who directed this episode, because Tinker left eventually, um, and there was a little bit of a break, and they were able to get him. And so he brought in some new writers in season three and some experienced writers. Um, and a lot of people left, uh, at the same time. So it was a big turnover. I don't know if you felt it. I felt that this episode looks different than the oh, first two seasons. Yeah. yeah. I actually noticed it right away from like the first shot where they do that, like crane move, uh, the one with Hurst down. on the floor. No, it's oh. it's a, it's a shot of the town. It's an exterior shot of the town. Oh right, it's yeah, like kind a, it's of a like CG a, background or something. Yeah, yeah and yeah. I noticed it was like CGI, and I was like, oh, that's weird. They've never done that before. So like right away, I felt like there was something different going on. Yeah, I I feel that um, I feel it's it's shot more. Um, Tinker directed it. I guess the NYPD Blue 
kind of makes sense. It, it felt like it was shot more like the way that conversational network shows are shot in some ways. Mm-hmm. Like there was a lot more of um, a lot less long camera shots and more just close-ups of the two characters who are having a conversation with each other. It it didn't feel, it felt different from the first two seasons. It's hard to put a finger on it, but there was something almost dreamlike about it. Like a lot of, there was a lot of um, like short lens work. Like the the backgrounds are blurry in a way that I'm not used to on Deadwood. It feels like Mm. they didn't do that as much outside of the pilot, which Walter Hill directed. But this one, it felt like they definitely, uh, went in a different direction at least in how they they, uh, shot the thing yeah i did notice there were quite a lot of close-ups um i i did think it worked really well in the the scene with with hearst and bullock though because they just keep cutting back to this extreme close-up on bullock as like you can see the 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 cartoon tea kettle noise starts going off (laughs) and like the steam starts coming out of his collar much anticipated mr bullock some good solid talk between us will you drink no Thanks. I believe I won't either. I'm told that you operate a hardware concern. I partnered with Solstar. Ah, candidate for mayor. As you are for sheriff. And an officer of the Deadwood Bank. Saul's chief officer. Yes. And you are an officer, too. Yes. The bank capitalized, as I understand, by Mrs. Alma Garrett Ellsworth, formerly quartered in this hotel and who has struck so rich in these hills. Way back second to you. Extraordinary. The story of that woman's adventures. Do you suppose that its future chapters might be written Elsewhere than the hills. What are your intentions? As to Mrs. Ellsworth's holdings, I would shape those to the lady's preferences and be pleased and grateful if you told her. Do you need a handkerchief, Mr. Bullock? Unfortunate incident this morning at Swearingen Saloon. Do you know about it? No. One of my workmen was killed in a drunken shootout. Hmm. How will you deal with that, Sheriff? Depends what it was about, who makes complaints. Hmm. My worker was Cornish. They are a clannish people. I suppose another Cornish might complain. I need to hear what he said then. He may also indict the sunrise. For men of that sort, events such as these are as natural. Anyways. May we speak of your ambitions? Another time. I would want to support them, you see. I would want to back you, to thank you for taking her my message. I never said I'd take her your message. Are you saying now that you won't? You stay out of our fucking affairs. Affairs of that sort are not my interest, Mr. Bullock. My only passion is the color. Because, uh, yeah, now that you've reminded me of that, like the, the shot of Bullock, there's something about the angle 
right? On there's there's like the there's something strange about the angle that was chosen, yeah. and it's not strange, but it's very different from the way that Deadwood was previously shot by um, yeah. the previous director. So it's we'll see it's if it's a stick. very it's a very stylized angle where it's like it's not straight on it's like kind of tilt it's tilted the camera's kind of up and tilted down a little bit yep yep you know and so so you're getting like this extreme close-up of his face at this kind of odd angle and you still get like the mirror in the background yes, and yeah. it's, it's it's a more it's a more um kind of impressionistic shot i think than the, the show usually does yeah that's that's, I don't know a, if that's the right word but no it's um would it be impressionistic or like it's not surreal, but there's something dreamlike about it, I guess. Like sure. it, it just it feels it feels out of reality. Um, but we'll see if it sticks or if it's just really kind of a, a Mark Tinker thing that's been added to it. But Ted Mann is back. Uh, some of the other writer, Regina Corrado, has returned in this one as a writer. So it's still a small group of writers with Milch laying on his back on the floor, uh, verbally writing out the scripts as everyone stands around and waits for the pages yeah, to be done. I I skimmed that thing that that Kyle put up on the Discord, and that I was wasn't sure if I was understanding it correctly, but I apparently I was, and that just sounds like brutal for everybody involved. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was apparently his writing style, which is that he. So many of the characters have back problems because Milch has back problems, um, mm. which I can relate to. But his his writing for the day would be he would lay on the floor and have a, like his assistant with the computer, and he would verbal and they would project the script up onto the wall, and he would verbally write the script, and then the assistant would type it in to and make changes and things like that. I I'm very impressed by that because any any time that I have tried to like leave myself a voice memo to write something like in, in the way that one might write it, I can never do it. Yep. It just never, it never comes out the same way for some reason, whatever the, the, uh, the pathway is from my brain to my hands and my brain to my mouth is completely different. Yeah. <laughs> I think for, for Deadwood, at least it kind of makes sense because the way that the dialogue is so, the way that the dialogue is so stylized, I do feel that he would have to say it out loud to see how it yeah. sounds. Yeah, you do. Yeah. So it, it makes sense that it would be written that way. I I don't really have a problem with his writing. Apparently, he the, the people that got annoyed by his writing process thought it was a little bit like performative, like people would kind mm. of watch him do this and he felt and and they thought that Milch was kind of like not showing off but being just kind of like an arrogant prick about it, just being like look, yeah, I can look, see that. look what I can do. So Yeah. Uh, it does feel very uh uh Self-aggrandizing, I guess, would be the yeah, word. Yeah, it, it feels like something like a Roman emperor would do. Yeah, yeah, right. Like, is there, are there grapes. people feeding him grapes <laughs> yeah. and like fanning him down? Yeah, so it's it's that's uh, it's been something he's been doing the entire series and continues that's to how, do it here. That's how Baron Harkonnen writes. <laughs> the grapes would be a nice touch. It's hot wherever they are. So that's pretty much it for the uh, behind-the-scenes stuff. There'll be more as the season uh, season continues and we have different things to talk about. But it's really just a lot of turnover coming into this season. I, again, will state that I remember this being one of my favorite seasons. I don't, I can't remember accurately if I thought one or three was better. Mm-hmm. But my uh, delight with George Hurst always makes me think of season three. And so we'll see if that lives up to anything. And you, of course, have not seen any of season three, so this is all going to be new for you. Right, yeah, I, I uh, this def- watching this one, I definitely thought I had I had seen none of this. Okay, yeah, it's all it's all brand new. So why don't you start us off? What did you think of Tell Your God to Ready for Blood? I don't know. I didn't watch it. Yeah, it was, it was kind of it's kind of boring. We could have skipped it, so we'll just come yeah. back next week. Um, <laughs> Do you? Well, I guess my first question would be: 
do you, as someone unfamiliar with it, did you, were you surprised or did you notice that, first of all, it was the longest previously on Deadwood, I think that we, I think if you combined oh, all really? the previously with Deadwoods, it would have equaled the length of this one. But um, did you feel that a lot of the characters were um, not reset, but like that the episode almost restressed a lot of character traits that have been brewing in characters since the very beginning of the series. I'm thinking in particular like Bullock's inability to control his, himself is, yeah. is a big part of this one. Joni being suicidal is another one that's a part of it. I was kind of surprised that it, it didn't feel like the characters were going back or regressing, but I was a little bit surprised at how this one took advantage of character traits that I almost would have expected that they would get better at by this point. Mm -hmm. Like you think that their characters would have learned something, but no, this episode relies pretty heavily on existing characterization to make things work, make the the wheels spin. Yeah. I was, I was a little surprised that Seth went off the way that he did given the, the journey he went on through the second season. It did seem a little bit uh, surprising that he would react so strongly to uh, something he didn't have all the information about. Yeah. Um, but I will say the one that did stand out to me immediately was Al because that first scene with Al, when he comes down after the guy gets shot and he's, he's chewing out um, Jewel and everything, I was like, oh, this feels like first season Al. Mm-hmm. The way that he's uh, trying to run run the game on uh, on the house, on, on Saul, and just the way that he's being really shitty to jewel and it just it felt a lot more I, it almost felt like they came back after season two and were like we've softened al too much we need to we need to give him that edge that he had in the first season he's i, w- I would agree he he's he i guess that they the thing here is that he's stressed at this point right which is like causing his regression i, I don't disagree that he does come across as kind of the uh the more brute force um, sort of evil character, or at least the, mm-hmm. the 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 character who's willing to do all the dark stuff that he was in season one. I, yeah. it, it is a it is a they don't finish the episode that way, you know, no, because yeah. he 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 is his final scene is him talking to Bullock at the very end about like what the threat of Hearst means to everybody and that how he's he, he he's upset if that would be the way that things ended for the town. Uh, Swearingen is. So mm-hmm. I, I I think it's he's upset and frustrated and sort of uh, emotional and when he's when he's scrubbing the blood stain it's obviously all coming out he's very frustrated with Johnny and sort of has a short temper and everything like that but it does feel like he is um, back in his old season one shoes I thought that uh, to to get to the to move to the Bullock thing was it the right decision to have Bullock talk with Swearingen before he met with Hearst or or is mm. is Bullock's anger I was wondering if Bullock's anger seems to stick out more because Swearingen had overtly told him what Hearst was going to do in that mm-hmm. scene and I was thinking that wouldn't wouldn't Bullock's reaction make more sense if he was unaware of what Hearst was doing and he just could have naturally got carried away through his conversation with Hurst and had no, like Swearingen had not primed the pump for him because I was, 
I, I was struck a little bit by Bullock getting so mad so quickly. I was like, dude, Al just told you to get yeah. ready for this. Like, wh- why are you so angry? Where if he was caught unaware of it, I think it would have worked better for me. Yeah, I mean, he's going into that meeting specifically knowing that Hurst is trying to find a way to press his buttons and, and like, get one over on him. Yeah. And so it's, I mean, I guess you could, I agree. I think, I think the fact that Seth knew that going in and still reacted that way is, is not super consistent. Um, or just kind of, but, I, I guess maybe, uh, maybe not consistent, but like it shows badly on Bullock, I guess, yes. you know, it's like it's, and maybe yeah. that's kind of the point. Like that is sort of the point, but I, I, I still mm. feel after the three, the two seasons, he should be a little bit better at controlling his temper for these. Yeah. Things. Especially if he, if he knows that someone's, Doing it intentionally gonna, to him. Yeah, yeah. I, I think the argument might be that he was prepared for one thing and got hit with one something he wasn't prepared for, yeah, and that, so he reacted fair. accordingly. Yep. Um, Although he's, even so, he's pissed off even before that happens. Like the first right. thing that Hurst says to him <laughs> has him scratching his nose and looking furious. He, get, he gets pissed off the same way my dog gets pissed <laughs> off. Where if you if you say like you know you want to go for a walk he, and he and you don't do it right away he starts like walk around going like. <laughs> Like sneezing. <laughs> you need a tissue, sir. I think another, like, I'll finish with this final thought and you can let me know what you thought. But I I continue to think that Oliphant is definitely not the strongest actor in the entourage, right? And I think that the mm. scene with Hearst is a good example of what Timothy Oliphant does not do particularly well. And, like, the the casting that I think that they had in mind for Bullock does not exactly line up with what, Oliphant is good at in a lot of ways. Like he, he, his, his switch to anger comes across as I think a little bit too petulant, which in, in maybe in an ideal casting of Deadwood's Bullock, he would be more, it would look less like he was sort of a spoiled brat and it would just be more of like an outburst that would get, that would get him in trouble. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. There's something about the performance that just doesn't sit right. Like he, he acts a little bit too, obviously annoyed i guess and the characters can see through it and it it doesn't show hurst as like a a genius manipulator really because he just says something he's like oh this guy's clearly unstable and i can push him in one direction yeah they they try to do the i you know it's funny because i think i think what he's trying to do in this episode he has done better in the previous season Mm -hmm. and i don't know if it's because they've given him more stuff to chew on then or what but like i think about how he reacted to the death of uh what's the son's name uh william bullock william how soon we forget yeah i know memorable uh i i think i think he did a really nice job of playing that sort of bottled up emotion after in the in the scenes that followed William's death, like the scene where he's carrying the coffin and 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 uh, Al is yeah. trying to talk to him, and like, whereas in this one he's just tasked with, like, literally doing that. I'm gonna stand here and and wait till I explode, kind of thing. And I I just don't. It does kind of come off as is a little bit over the top the way that he does because I I don't know how else you're supposed to do it, but like it does feel like that cartoon thing where it's like you're waiting for his yeah. his head to go off like a tea kettle yeah yeah i 
Yeah, I guess in my, my ideal performance, it would be a little bit like, it must have been a direction choice sort of even written to the script, but like the, the scratching of his nose, you know, seems mm-hmm. like too obvious of a tell. It's like the the rounders bit of the tell is like you dunk your Oreo or something. It's like, I don't think that this guy would actually have such a dramatic tell as this, but I, my ideal casting would really just have, I couldn't come up with an actor off the top of my head, but it's like a, he's, he's more, he's more restrained in some ways, but like it, it still comes through, you know, he's not so obviously, Weak, or at least at this point, he shouldn't be because I I didn't really have the same problem back in season one where Swearingen was trying to talk to them about renting the lot that they wanted to get mm. because then it felt like it's kind of like a learning thing for Bullock and you know like he's coming in he's the lawman from out of town and this guy's going to try to swindle him and, and Bullock doesn't want to stand for that but it felt like there was a lesson learned there where here it's all he's forgotten the lesson and Hurst just gets the better of him right from the get go. Yeah, you know, and I. <clears throat> overall i don't know if i necessarily hate the choice um but i i do agree that he is probably the least uh he he's having the toughest time yeah um acting wise with everybody um because everybody else is so i you know it, it's still it's it's such a it's such a tough role because everybody else has like pretty big swaths they can cut yep and he has to keep it so tight yeah yeah um and timothy elephant always keeps it tight (laughs) but uh you know it's so it's it is it is a tough it is a tough role to play amongst all of these big uh loquacious characters they they mentioned Um, it in the bible and it's maybe not um you know they're actors they're supposed to get around it but oliphant as a normal person has a very laid back California attitude about him. Like, like the way that he is. And so it's like, it's, it's a real acting choice for him to be Bullock, you know, like it, it, it doesn't seem like he naturally fits it. And, you know, great actors would get around that, I suppose, but it's not really a slight on him. It's just, he's, he's as a person, he's not really designed for what Bullock is supposed to be. It doesn't seem. You know, the interesting thing about that scene we're talking about in particular is I feel that um, Major Dad definitely doesn't have that problem. Like, I I feel like in that scene, acting-wise and just in the meat of the scene, Hurst eats his lunch, basically. You know, like, the the guy who plays Hurst is really good. Gerald McRaney. And and he can kind of get across this uh, um, air of... uh, controlled power very well yep um where he can he can really be intimidating without doing too much and i i just don't know if uh if if oliphant really has the 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 chops at this point to 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 match that no and it's Um, i mean it's sort of you know not to interrupt but it thematically matches what happens later when swearingen talks to hearst right like it's a Bullock has no chance against Hearst and can't manage it and kind of blows everything up, which leads to Swearingen having to talk to Hearst later on. Mm-hmm. And that seems fantastic because oh, it's yeah. just it's great. those two of them. Um, McRaney as Hearst is outstanding and obviously um, McShane as Swearingen is outstanding. But it's like the both of those characters in that scene react in ways that I would expect them to. And they're both... 
so, you know, I guess what I'm saying is that like the Bullock thing is intentionally supposed to get to that point, but it just feels, it feels a little bit sloppy to me how Bullock ends up fucking things up so badly, so quickly. You know, Amy had the comment that she's like, wow, season three really just starts, it like it gets going in a way that season Mm -hmm. two didn't get going. And And I felt that if this was season two, Bullock would have had a couple of episodes of like, the build up to this meeting or something and he would have been getting well, more and more annoyed by it. Let's not forget that season two starts with Al and that's true. Seth Bullock almost killing having, each other having, in the streets. <laughs> that's right. That's true. But they it doesn't um there's a lot there's a lot of that's actually not even really all that relevant to like the the plot itself because the, right. all that's that does kind is of remove Swearingen. Season one. Yeah and it's yeah. a hang- hangover from season one. It just removes Swearingen from the plot itself. But yeah. I, I, I I agreed with it. I think that like it kicks off very quickly in this one, and I think that Bullock's decisions are part of that quickness to get things moving. Yeah, I, um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'll reserve judgment on it overall until I see how things play out more. But I mean, I, I, I don't hate them getting going a little quicker because yep. um, I do think that season two is a lot more languid in its pace, for better or worse. Yeah. Um, but I mean, the thing that they're doing in season two requires much more rope. Yep. Um, whereas here, I mean, you know, Hearst is here. May as well get down to it, you know? Yeah. And I, I think a good way to move off of that is that um, Hearst and Hearst is an evolution of Walcott, interestingly to me. Like they're, they're not very different characters from each other. It's just that Hearst is more... Uh, fully developed than Walcott is. There's like an insecurity in Walcott that prevents mm-hmm. him from being as uh, devastating as Hearst can be. Um, when he said, when when Walcott said all he cares about is the color, he was talking about getting peed on. That's <laughs> some R. Kelly vibes in 1876, where the only passion that George Hearst has is for the color. Um, just to go back to that scene, you can take it any way you want. Does Hearst know what he's doing when he's talking to Bullock? Or is he, or is uh, in, he just in lucky? In terms of what? Or is he just lucky in terms of using the right word of affairs when he's talking to him? Oh, and did, did, uh, in terms of does Hearst... Does Hearst know what all... Actually did, know... Did he know about, before that conversation what was going on with Bullock and Alma? Um, I don't know. He seems like someone who would, but... Uh, the way that he kind of plays the rest of the episode kind of makes me think that he doesn't yeah because he he seems a little bit baffled by it (laughs) (laughs) yeah he's um i think he's set up as because they've implied this ability that he has to sniff out gold right Mm -hmm. like they've implied that he hearst is a person who just kind of intuits things and is able to see things for what they are like his pure his, the purity of Hearst's drive is what enables him to see other things very clearly is the way that I always take it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it's sort of a combination. It's sort of a dirt. Like I, I probably would say that Hearst doesn't know what's going on until the minute that Bullock walks into that room kind of, and then Hearst can, and Hearst knows something immediately at that point. He does this weird thing of, he mentions Alma's entire full name to him, to Bullock mm-hmm. and sort of gauges his reaction um, he uses the words affairs. Yes. Like, you know, the, the it, it's crossing this line of being personal where he's like, would you 
do you think that Alma would basically leave the town and so that I could act here unencumbered, which comes across as kind of a way of like semi-insulting to Bullock, like knowing the relationship and whether or not she would leave and stuff like that. I, I'm not entirely sure, but as you say, Hurst spends the rest of the episode kind of figuring out and the rest of the characters try to figure out if it was just Bullock spoiled himself or if E.B. Farnham had, had told her something, which is not the case. And then, But then there's the end of that where he has to ask Bullock why he's both crying and has an erection at the same time. There's <laughs> only enough for one. There's only enough blood flow. Outside of that, he results in Bullock just beating the shit out of Farnham, which is which is a lot of fun, leading to the scene that we were talking about before where Farnham is laying on the bed to kick the shit and he has to talk to Al and convince Al that he didn't I, tell anybody. I did really like the metaphor that E.B. wove about Bullock going up to talk to Hearst. The the whole uh, gold metaphor about striking into his vein yes, and splitting yeah. it. You know, that, yep. that was good. Yeah. <laughs> As they're like leering uh, from down, down on the steps. Yep. So uh, Farnham convinces uh, Swearingen that he did not tell Hurst, but then that causes Al to have to go and talk to Hurst himself and threaten him, uh, threaten Hurst in their scene together with, um, if things don't go well, Al has no problem complicating things and sort of mm-hmm. bringing Deadwood back to the way that it was, which is. Uh, the season one Deadwood, which was lawless and commerce couldn't actually function there because there is no law and there's nothing to protect. And that's something that Hearst is not interested in. So Hearst's goal is not really to tear everything down um, and destroy everything. It's more to just take control of everything that's been built up, which will enable him to get the the mines running. Yeah, I do. <laughs> I did really like that from Al where he's where his his response is basically like, listen, I have. I have no qualms about making this place a total hellhole again. In fact, I'm looking forward to doing it. <laughs> it's uh, how will we, how will we know when you're off your feed, Al? Yeah, it's uh, Hurst lets Al walk away at that very end, but they have um, they are plotting something with those uh, the assassins who killed the Cornish. Are the assassins the Irish? No. Uh, just from their I accents, thought, you're talking. You, yeah, you I thought that? I, I thought I heard an Irish accent, but I wasn't sure. Get the fuck out! He come at me with his foreign gibberish. Get the fuck out! While I let you get the fuck out. You two, you get out that way. Leave him be, or you'll be riding a goddamn sled with him. Get out! Either you cocksuckers want to talk funny at me. Good night, sir. I'm unclear, I guess. The Cornish are Irish, right? Or the Cornish something. No, the Cornish would be... Um, Cornish is... I think Cornish Dutch? is... Uh, where are the Cornish find out. Yeah, Cornish. That's where they make the game hens. Ethnic group in the UK. Yeah, that's what I thought. Okay. It was a, a Britannic Celtic yeah. language family. Uh, yes. So they're not Irish, but they are they're British. So, yeah. The, I, yeah I don't know corn, if the, Associated with Cornwall and a recognized national minority in the United Kingdom. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know if the assassins were Irish. Um, they do have sort of a, a, a 
accent to them. But one guy definitely didn't look Irish, so maybe it's just him. All I know about the Cornish. My pause implies I'm going to get racist, okay. but I'm not. <laughs> All I know about the Cornish. They like to unionize. I know that much. <laughs> All I know about the Cornish is that uh, it was the king of Cornwall whose wife Uther Pendragon stole, which oh. led to his uh, untimely death and Merlin taking his firstborn son, whose name was Arthur. Yeah. <laughs> so there's your history lesson for you for the Uther day. Uther Pendragon. Um <laughs> you know what I learned? I'm only bringing this up because I was the the King Arthur thing made me think about how so much of that is actually like there's like a French element to it that yep. got added and all this kind of stuff. You know what I learned recently that kind of blew my mind? <clears throat> Greco-Roman wrestling mm-hmm. was invented in France as recently as the 1800s. The only reason it's called Greco-Roman is because they wanted to get it into the Olympic Games. Oh, okay. Yeah. Isn't that why? Like, I never, I just assumed it's like, oh, it's, you know, yeah, you know, they wrestled. Apparently, the wrestling they did way back when was not, was completely just different. Fighting. Yeah. Just uh, no, no, yeah. no rules. Everything is a lie. Huh. Yeah. Well, I guess you, you always have to appeal to the, the egos of the Greeks and the Romans when you try to in, bring something into the Olympics, which I guess is why, you know, snowboarding like is kilts? a hard time. The modern understanding of like wearing a kilt and your yep. uh, uh, what is it your your Tartans. family colors yeah that's also fairly recent that's like an eighteen hundreds thing as well is that really I think there's there's like a connection that goes back but like the popularization of it like everyone wearing well, them or something, or something yeah like that, that was that was a fashion thing it was basically like a hipster fashion thing in the eighteen hundreds oh okay so. Well, that's not what Mel Gibson's Braveheart tells me, Clay, so I don't know if that's actually mm. true. Have you ever seen that statue, the Braveheart statue? That's oh, in Mel Scotland? Gibson? Yeah, the one not not the not the like the official William Wallace statue, but like it's a it's a Braveheart statue. <laughs> no, it's in, oh, it's, it's in it's, Scotland. It's awful. <laughs> Try and find it for you. I'm surprised that the Scottish would uh would allow that. Seems like a New Zealand thing to do. Um Back to this. Uh, I mean, other, and I guess other characters are like Jane is drinking again in this one is a prominent uh, story, mm-hmm. which feels like it's a little bit of a, a, a redundancy or like they're going back on something. Um, this is the picture of. Oh, he's, yeah. he's like screaming. <laughs> yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> Freedom. Uh, but yeah, I, I just I thought a lot of the characters felt like they were uh reverting or something like that but it, or like it it felt like i was i was surprised by the lack of advancements in their story even though i think this is probably the biggest jump we've had in deadwood's timeline between this episode and the last episode of the, the second season um i think it's been a couple months potentially that has separated it so uh, mm. not sure i was i was surprised at i guess i wasn't really surprised but i this show always surprises me in in that in how much they let time actually pass between seasons. Yeah. Um so you know having having the election starting and Saul running for for mayor I was was surprising and having the bank up and running to the point where they were giving out loans for houses and stuff or whatever yeah. that was yeah. is, was surprising. Um <clears throat> why did Adam have such a nice house? How did he land that? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> what if we stretched out the payments? I cannot fucking make it. 
The fuck was in my head to sign that note? Take it easy. Take it easy, Mr. Adams. Oh, take it off me, can't you? Ain't there some way to take it off? Oh, God. I'm in crisis, too. Need an awfully to piss. Although you know, it's, it's isn't next it relatable though. It's it's isn't he, maybe maybe it's a big short situation where he ended up getting a loan that he couldn't pay back and bought a house that was too big and the market crashed. Because as far as I know, in Deadwood, there's like a house, there's maybe the, two. Well, Adams is is next to the whorehouse like boarding house with that Shaughnessy guy who's one of my favorite mm-hmm. characters. Uh, the the sort of. Um, Interesting new character. Yeah, interesting new character who runs his like boarding facility there. Um, but yeah, Adams, one of the things we haven't talked about and that I was really reminded of in this one is, and the show hasn't even commented on it, Adams is frequently asked by Al or other people to pretend to be like have different motivations than what he does. So he basically has to act. And mm-hmm. I've always kind of noticed that he's not particularly good at it, but the show yeah. <laughs> never calls it out on him, which is funny. Like there's in the second season when he had to pretend when he was talking to Jerry and things like that, I kept expecting a cutaway to Al who just like turns his head and goes like, Jesus Christ, like tone it down. You know, this is like, you're, you're not selling it, but no one, um, no one seems to think he's actually overacting, which I think is well, funny. They, they do in this episode. Yes. And Trixie, Trixie picks up on out. it. Yep. Yeah. Um, I, I liked Saul's reaction, which was just complete befuddlement yeah, as, he just as to whatever was going on. He <laughs> just stands behind the desk as like people leave the scene and they come back five minutes later and he's still just standing there befuddled as to what is going on. Mm-hmm. Trixie and him uh, have a fun, uh, very funny relationship. Uh, I like when Trixie yells at Saul. It's funny. Yeah. Uh, so what do you think? Any thoughts about this one outside of that? I, I asked you your, your sort of opening thoughts, but what did you think in general? Um, I thought it was good i i continue to be uh i mean at this point i'm not surprised by it but i i guess the endings of these episodes always catch me off guard because they all just sort of like meander their way to the credits Mm -hmm. in a way that is different from i feel like most shows um and they do have so i think it's just that there's so many what am I trying to say? Uh, it doesn't feel like it doesn't really feel like a season premiere type episode because they just click right back into gear with like five or six different stories at the same time. Right. And so it just kind of feels like you're back in the world. Things are going on as they're going on. And from like a TV standpoint, it doesn't feel like it's this big uh, return to the show or anything like that, which I'm not saying is a bad thing. It's just it's just different. Yeah, um, watching them all in a row, it just it, it makes it feel like there is no real seasons between the two. Right. Of them. That's that's the thing. Like coming back to this, I felt like the last season didn't even end. It was just things were just kept going. You right. Know? Still ongoing. And it's I, it's strange too from a from like a a viewer standpoint because. This show doesn't really give you a lot of cues as to what you should get excited about mm-hmm. or um, storylines that you should get into. They just kind of happen. And so when you've got that final scene with uh, with Al and, and Seth, it's a good scene 
and what it's establishing is is for the season is really interesting in that Hurst is is probably going to be coming after Al. Um but it's done in such a way that it, it it's it's just kind of lays it out there and 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 just kind of you you pick it up or you don't. Right. So it's it's just continues to be structurally a very interesting show. Pain in the balls, Hurst. Running his holdings like a despot, I grant, has a fucking logic. It's the way I fucking run mine. It's the way I'd run my home if I fucking had one. But there's no practical need for him to run the fucking cap. That's how to scale. It's out of proportion. And it's a warped, unnatural impulse. This fucking cocksucker. Sorry. Shall I go back down with you? Won't be just now. He'll be wanting to marshal his cutthroats. My takeaway from like the larger point of this one is that there was, um, and I don't know if it's because of where we are in the third season or if it's a product of the show itself, there are certain storylines that are, like I can easily kind of sort storylines at this point to me, like whether or not I like them or not mm-hmm. really. And I'm starting to see the storylines that I'm surprised that they're sticking with and giving so much time to because I don't know if there's a lot there anymore sure, that they can get sure. into. I think like the Jane and Joni storyline kind of fits that for me. Like, yeah, yeah, they, they I kind of feel like they're repeating themselves a little bit and I'm it's not the most interesting storyline to me, really. Like I, I understand the like the heart of the conflict between them and that they they are kind of protecting each other and they, they complete each other in a way that no one else in their orbit can. Like Joni goes back to uh, Sai a little bit in this one and she's kind of, she's searching for a reason to live and so she goes back to the Bella Union but she knows that that isn't her calling and that's like not the best thing for her so that's when she contemplates suicide and then she goes, goes back and then she has her connection with Jane which is that like as they are united they kind of like, fix each other for from drinking and this desperation or the suicidalness or whatever and that's all well and good it just it just doesn't feel like they their scenes don't feel like they have a point to move them forward into anything unfortunately Mm -hmm. and i contrast it with i'm super invested in just like the hearst versus the town stuff at this point you know and it's like that's the stuff that i feel like all the scenes really crackle and there's like an interesting and like, what are they going to do at this point? And there's this threat of uh, violence in the background, even if there's nothing overtly happening. So I I feel like there are some scenes that were character arcs that I'm a little bit surprised are still in the show at this point and that they're continuing with them in the third season. Yeah. I, I feel like um, if we're taking early bets on which one of the storylines is going to be, get the, uh, um, Isrenhausen Award. Mm-hmm. I feel like Joni's storyline is going to be the one because it it just the fact that she's. I actually completely forgot that she had previously been suicidal, and now that you've told me that, it makes me feel even more so like they don't really know what to do with her. Yeah, yeah. Um, and like it's her story at the moment is that she doesn't know what to do with herself, but I don't have a ton of confidence that that's not just the writers and Milch uh, echoing their own feelings about her, right. you know? Yeah. Um, it's, it's weird that her storyline crossed seasons to me, you know, like it, it feels like the kind of thing that they're, they're 
maybe they just didn't have time, but it feels like there's the kind of thing where there's something happens at the end of the second season that sets her on a new, a new path that they can mm. go with her. But to come back to it just felt redundant again. It just felt like, oh, it's like, oh, right, we're still here with Joni, unfortunately. And and Jane is kind of the same way where it's like she's back drinking and you're like, you know, I, yeah. I, I, a lesser show, maybe, and it's not particularly Deadwoodian, but it's because I think that Milch and the writers like the characters to exist as the way that they've drawn them. So moving them in a particular way, a way away from that is not exactly what the show is interested in. But at the same time, the characters can only circle the drain so many times before you start going right. like, "Why? Like, why won't they do something else?" Yeah, I when when uh, when Jane showed up and she was getting trashed again, I I was part of me was disappointed because i did feel like that they had regressed her <clears throat> but with her specifically i didn't mind it that much because i i find that to be a fairly realistic portrayal of an alcoholic yeah yeah you know because that's i i feel like that's not the kind of thing that they do on tv that often where usually if it's an alcoholic who who kicks um they they have scenes in later seasons where they're they're horribly tempted or they go on a uh, a binge or something and it's all big and dramatic whereas this one it's like no she said she was going to stop drinking and she didn't right you know she she did for two weeks and then she's she didn't yep which is really more accurate to the way that stuff usually plays out evening jane Mrs. Bullock asks me to author with her to give the children an account of my scouting for custard. I think I'd like to hear that story myself. Custard was a cut. The end. Oh, a piss puddle. Must not have seen that when seating myself. Why are you drinking so much? I drink what I'm able. If that comes too much, that's the day's affair in the liquors. You return into the Bella Union. Not tonight. As residence and workplace is my meaning. Those girls need looking out for. And who will look out for you? Against that gut-stabbed cocksucker weaving schemes from his coming to Jesus. I don't know. Why is everybody fucking whispering all of a sudden? I said I don't know. And they they um, are they are pairing her with Mose, who has been redeemed in in a right. lot of ways, you know. So it's like she's getting frustrated by the fact that uh, this guy has proven, like, made it very obvious that it is possible to change and to like to right. do better with yourself. Yeah, and it it does it does disappoint me that. Joni is that they haven't figured out what to do with her um and as far as Jane goes I mean who hasn't forgotten to look down and accidentally sat and pissed that may or may not be their own uh but like it was it was strange to me so if I understand what's going on the the Chez Amis is now the school right yes they they rented us to use it as a school place yep. yeah I I was kind of surprised that they didn't just like that just wasn't the new paradigm for her mm -hmm. and Jane is is dealing with that and that they did have her going back to side like I get it to a certain extent that you know side got step but whatever but it's like I didn't 
I didn't find this the her and size stuff particularly engaging because I did feel like this was just sort of retreading yeah. stuff. Yeah. Um so I'll be interested to see if they find something for her to do or if she just keeps running in place. Yeah. Uh I, I am sad to see that apparently between seasons Lila became a heroin addict. <laughs> which <laughs> I I don't know if that's uh another uh, hand of the God Rider on the scale because they didn't like her or something. But I, I was very surprised to see that. I thought the girl who was in charge was her because I, I, they look oh, kind of sure. similar. Yeah, they do. Yeah. And then, yeah. and then she turns to to Lila, who's just all strung out in the corner. I was like, what? Yep. It's a hard life, Clay. His the yeah, the, the life of war. <laughs> but it's uh, yeah. I, you know the Sai and Joni thing is like the, I think it's it's intentionally done as frustrating because she's not going to go back to him right, but she's still looking yeah. for what she can do. But it's um, you know she so it, it's a it's a plot beat or whatever you want to call it or a storyline that you know is not going to go one way, but they still kind of have to do it to show how desperate she is and how she's at the low point in her life at this point where she's even considering going back and thinking that that's something that she wants to do. Mm-hmm. But um, it's probably all just set up, and or and we'll see exactly what happens in the next couple episodes. Yeah, I, I I'm you know I was thinking you could go one way you could go is, uh, Joni now has to balance her pull back to Psy with her pull to to the school to a yep. more straight life. But that's just Trixie again, and it's the yes. Trixie angle is a lot more interesting. Than, than it would have been with Joni. So. Yeah. I, I think I mentioned before, Joni's one, not one of my favorite characters, really, in the show. Mm-hmm. I think it's just a combination of she's not super exciting as a character and the performance doesn't really do anything I, for me. I really like her. I, I think the actress is good. I like her. But I think there was a certain point in season two where it seemed like they were going to do something interesting with her and then they ended up not. And, right. and that, I, I mean, what... What happens obviously is Walcott kills everybody, but it's yeah. it it is. I, I I was hoping they were going to find something more for her to do um, instead of just sort of sit around and be sad sad for herself for most of the season. Yeah, yeah. Um, the other plots are Saul and Trixie who are trying to get a place, and they're trying to get a place. If we haven't mentioned, it's because uh, Saul is running for mayor, so Swearingen wants him to win, and he can't have the mayor. Uh, he just uh, fucking whores in his hardware store, so he's gonna <laughs> he's gonna give him Adams's house, uh, and then I can't tell if he's joking or not, but like cut a hole in the wall so the Trixie can get yeah. into the house. <laughs> it's unclear if that's a joke or if that's something that's actually going to happen. Um, but that's all laying the foundation for the elections that are the the backbone of what they want to do because the elections will um, provide a little bit of. Um, protection against Hearst, I suppose. And Hearst is obviously interested in getting the elections and having his people win the elections that come up. I'm wondering if uh, if Saul doesn't just ask her to marry him. Because that's kind of that's kind of how I thought that scene was going. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> when she gets so uh, amped up about the, the situation and her just When I come to, through the wall and tend yeah. to your Johnson... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought like the, the especially the way he was getting very flustered by it. I thought it was going to end with him proposing marriage to right. her or something. Yeah, because he, he I mean, I feel like that's. Side. I think that's that's part of what is so frustrating to Trixie is that she's 
still doing all like you know she's still sneaking around in the shadows and x yeah. y and z and you know so i, I I'm, I'm wondering if that's on the, on the table the risk business on adam's house loan adam's being nothing but his fucking stalking horse from the gambit's fucking beginning you signed to take those over we'll move in your 12 possessions you will be free to come and go by your own front fucking door and as you lay in your beddy by i'll pop from the wall like Grandma Groundhog in a storybook and attend to your Johnson as he'd not see you jeopardize your mayor's campaign whore-fucking in your place of business. And I'll have installed in room three fucking see or the like of Shaughnessy's adjacent shitbox that he's paid Shaughnessy to cut a hole through to ease my fucking fucking you. Swearingen has. Who the fuck was I just talking to? I don't know. You said you'd just gone to piss. Sorry, just a moment. Charlie Utter is back here. He has this yeah. scene with um, Bullock where Bullock p- puts himself in the cage and says he doesn't want to be the... Because uh, a lot of, the, a lot of the, the character motivations for the guys is that they don't want to be running for office, but they kind of have to, yes. and none of them yeah. want to. So uh, that's the tension that's going on uh, there, which ties into the Hearst and the Bullock storyline and the Saul and Trixie storyline and things like that. But Charlie comes back and tries to um, pep up Seth Bullock the best that he can. I um I should have my girlfriend watch this season because I think she would identify with 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 all those plot threads because she was recently made a manager at her job and she really doesn't want to be a manager. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, look, <laughs> look at all these people who don't want to do the things that they have to do. That's right. It's time to suck and up then the she'd responsibility. Be, then she'd probably be like, yeah, how about I just kick the shit out of you <laughs> instead because it <laughs> seems to work for Seth Seth Bullock. How can you tell when you're off your feed, Clay? <laughs> um, Alma. Oh, and I guess another one is Alma is back on laudanum at this point. So, you know, it's... Yeah, it, 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 I'm, hoping, I'm hoping that doesn't continue because that's... I'm not interested in that. Yeah, you know? yeah. The, uh, her storyline is that the obviously uh, for just the listeners that the uh, her pregnancy is difficult at this point. So she is bedridden um, is, in between is bossing actress- around Ellsworth. Is the actress really pregnant or something? Because that really feels like something they would do if she was really pregnant, where it's like, all right, we'll just put you in a bed. Oh, it's a good question. I don't think she is, though. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a good point just to have her have her lay down with heavy blankets on top of her to hide what's actually going on. Although yeah, being pregnant the, uh, in this one would be helpful to her. That's true. It would. Uh, can't do the, the X-Files thing where they just give her increasingly bigger coats. <laughs> did, did Ellsworth do the right thing? In that he comes in the door and immediately leaves, or the wrong thing, in that he did not check on her before running out to get the I, doctor. <laughs> I thought the exact same thing. I was like, <laughs> I think you, I don't know, because I feel like you. You might be losing <sighs> valuable seconds if you go to check on her and not get the right, doctor. Right, right. But, you know, I mean, I guess, I guess there's nothing to be said was wrong in doing that. No. Unless she was like choking on something. Bold but, choice, though. I don't think I would. I don't. If I came in, opened the door, and Amy was just like on the floor with a puddle of blood, I wouldn't be like, I have to go get somebody. You know, I, I think I would run mm. over. I know they're newlyweds and stuff like that, but I still think that that's something something you might check on first. Like, what if she's just falling asleep on the floor? You know? Yeah, you know, as as you do when you're pregnant. <laughs> they all have lower back pain, just like George Hurst does. Uh, but there's not much else to say about the Alma storyline. It's just it's just started getting um, going. Um, who else is there? Is there anybody else? No. It's Dan and Johnny fight the Cornish. Uh, Hurst does his thing. Oh, what about um, what's his name? 
the guy who uh, who was there when the kid got run over. The guy who tarred. Oh, Sam Sam Fields. Yeah, racist, being, the racist Steve the racist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Talking to his buddy about if you if you become sheriff, will you protect me if I take over Hofstadler's <laughs> thing and he comes back and tries to kill me? Because <laughs> I did I did really like. I mean, I I did really like the the follow up on the shit that he was slinging the last season, where he's like, my entire family has been fucked for the entire yeah. history yeah. of our existence, <laughs> and that stops now. <laughs> No, it's I. Steve is actually. I remember just virulently hating Steve, and I think Steve is like intentionally hateable. But he's he's a really well drawn character. I think mm. he, he's like um, his motivations are entirely consistent, and he is. I think the performance is great from Michael Haney. I think the name of that actor is. Yeah, he's, he's good. He's got he's got some really good lines, and I. I that's kind of a little throwaway vignette scene. Um, it's more like Milch commenting on politics. I, I like the ending line from uh, Tom there, which is like, why run for office and tend bar at the same time when you could just tend bar and have your friends come and punch you in the face and accomplish yeah. the same thing? <laughs> so it, it's that that's pretty funny. But I, I think they're really, it's kind of a vignette scene to get all that uh, stuff across and to establish that Hostetler and uh, the general have not returned yet, but it doesn't necessarily need to be there uh, at the same time. Do they eventually come back? Because that did very much feel like a uh, uh, Eddie situation. No, they do. Between, yeah, they, they, they do. They okay. Do. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I was thinking, again, this show is just like, I, I've never seen a show that can just stop having characters on it the way that this one does. <laughs> if they were gone, I think you would have had Steve, the, the racist, actually working in delivery, like a scene of it would have oh, sure, You know, sure, he yeah. would have been like, I've yeah. taken over. What if you won? I won't. I'm only in it to make myself known. Say you're fucking elected, Harry. Am I entitled to the fucking livery abandoned by the nigger Hostetler leaving its stock to starve? Well, I know you've took up its care. And do you, as sheriff, hold my fucking labor speaks for me, my diligent fucking efforts the last six fucking weeks? I'd hold it the law, Steve. Whatever statute applied. Well, oughtn't a statue have to do with justice? And not just to bait back a fled fucking nigger looking to steal what a white man's work for? Well, Hostetler ain't come back. Why think he ever will? Because it's my family luck over centuries to get repeatedly fucked up the ass. And here, in this fucking camp, is where the chain gets fucking broken. And I'm asking if you, as sheriff, will stand with me. I, I th- I've been thinking about that a little bit. Every... Uh... In, in in reference to movie franchises now and how the big movie franchises just seem to accumulate characters that they won't let go of. Yeah. And it's so strange because, like, if you think back to, like, any James Bond movie or bat the old Batman movies or whatever, the only person who remains in the cast, basically, is Batman or James Bond. And right. it kind of, you know, and some of the peripheral people. But it's not like it's not like after Batman Returns uh in batman forever catwoman is also there and then in batman and robin catwoman two-face and the riddler are also you know what i mean yeah but they all these giant things it's just like the fast and furious movies have like 25 people in the principal cast now that all get their own car and shit it's (laughs) you know it's very strange (laughs) it's too valuable to get rid of them 
right? You need you need to keep them around. And they, they're bringing back people who have died, and right. it's just I don't know. It's it's very CGI can do that nowadays. Yeah, the whole <laughs> yeah, Deadwood um, doesn't really have a problem with getting rid of uh, some of the characters. I, you know, it's it's we're also functioning with a little bit of knowledge in that this is the final season, right? So sure, there's not there's sure. like a there's a kind of a lack of concern. Uh, mm-hmm. At least on, I, on my part, I can't remember. I think I asked this previously. Do they know they're getting canceled at this point? They don't. Or do, no, they don't. Do they not find out until the season's over? Correct. Okay. All right. Yeah. So the the season was made with the intention of potentially having another one come through. Gotcha. Um. So I guess that's it. Anything else to talk about in this one? Um, I'll put all the quotes in and everything like that, all the clips and stuff like that. But it, it was a. I my general takeaway is that I don't think this was the strongest episode. It felt a little bit like the redundancy that we've talked about is kind of the main thing that I noticed from it. Um, but at the same time, I, I the, the and, and there's going to be there's going to be a storyline in this season that if you had a problem with the Isern housing thing, like this oh is boy. this is going to top it. So like that Great. that has not started yet, and so season three has a little bit of ups and downs. But I just you know, just again to say it over, like the Hearst in the town stuff to me is incredible, really. And it's like what carries the season through uh, through some of the low points that it might have. But um, any episodes that just have Swearingen talking to Hearst about something or Hearst sort of uh, doing that Walcott devil whispers in the ear of people to get them to reveal themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, that's always an A plus for me. And I always enjoy those scenes. Yeah, I'm looking forward to more of that as well. Um, I do wish that at the beginning of the episode, when you asked me how I was doing, I had said, I'm composing my thoughts, tropes, and gambits for the talk between us that's yet to come. Cause <laughs> that's a that fitting one. Appropriate. That's a <laughs> that, was, that scene has a weird uh, camera pause on Dan. Well, Swearingen drinks from the whiskey bottle. It just felt like mm. it was a weird editing choice, but they did it. And uh, Al can obviously hold his liquor. When he has his talk with Hurst, he just finishes off the bottle and, and, and walks out of there. Uh, so that's it. Do you have any final thoughts or are we done? I think we're done. Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you want to support the show, <coughs> patreon.com slash the Penske file is the best way to do it. Support us and support Deadwood coverage around the globe. And otherwise, you support the other podcasts that we have. There's a whole bunch of them. There's a Star Trek one. There's a horror show with Clay and Amanda. There's a Batman the Animated Series one with Clay and Sean. Me and Clay do this one. We do the Star Trek one. We have a Discord. All these stuff. There's all the stuff in the links of the podcast. You can check out the little show notes thing and follow the links. And support the show at patreon.com slash the Penske file. Clay, do you have anything you want to say? On Patreon, Amanda and I are going through the infamous video nasties list. In July, we have done uh, Mario Bava's Bay of Blood. In August, we'll be doing Toby Hooper's The Fun House and uh so check that out and i have a comic book on the shelves batman white knight presents generation joker number three and number four should be out in august and number five has uh comes out in september and has a cover that i drew nice. which is my first cover I've, drew, I've drawn for dc comics so that's pretty fun very exciting excellent thanks everybody for listening we'll be back next week with i am not the fine man you take me for which will continue our coverage of Deadwood's third season. So thanks very much for listening. Leave the demons to God and trust the pain to me. See you later. Mm.
voters of the camp, do you see come before you some swollen and dissolute stranger? Do not mistake. It is I, E.B. Farnham. Not back, E.B. Beaten past recognition by a candidate for another office. Lie the fuck back. And listen. I need your truthful reply. Lie, I will know it. And death will be no respite. I told Hearst nothing of Bullock and the widow. I will profane your fucking remains, E.B. Not my remains, Al. Gabriel's trumpet will produce you from the ass of a pig. You told me not to tell him, and I didn't. I believe you. My pain is such that gives me no solace. Well, try not to blame Bullock for presuming it was you, considering your fucking history. Anyways, tonight's speeches are fucking canceled. Nurse your fucking wounds. Thank you. I do not mean here. All right, let me collect myself. <laughs> <laughs>